Hello, this is Sam Liebens from the University of Haifa recording this uh, for you in the rainy city of Leicester in England. Um, we've got to an amazing place in the book of uh, Shmuel, Shmuel Bet, um, in the 18th chapter, uh, I'll give a quick summary of the chapter before honing in on what I find to be a very captivating, if somewhat morbid, disturbing image at the heart of this chapter. Um, David Amelech has been offered an opportunity, basically, to uh, regroup um, because Avshalom didn't take uh, the advice of Achitofel to engage in a quick surgical strike as David Amelech was fleeing from Yushalayim. Instead, um, we're told because uh, God intervened, uh, Avshalom took the less good advice of Chushai. Uh, the advice was to um, mobilize the entire army, um, as many men as uh, Avshalom could muster, which obviously was going to take more time than a quick surgical strike. And uh, this gives David this opportunity. He does regroup. He um, he sends out his soldiers uh, in three groups, David Amelech, under the um, command of Yoav, one group, under the command of Avishai, the brother of Yoav, uh, the second group, and the third group, under the command of Itai Agiti, Itai the Gittite. And um, they uh, urged David not to come with them, since the entire raison d'etre of Avshalom's uh, um, campaign is to have David Amelech killed. Um, and since they're trying to defend David Amelech's uh, place on the throne, they think it would be counterproductive and also potentially bad for, very bad for morale if uh, David Amelech is uh, exposed to danger. So they leave him behind and they go out and they fight this battle. And it's a, a massive victory for the uh, soldiers of uh, David Amelech. Um, the, the verse describes it as a magifah, as a plague, a great plague that was uh, unleashed upon um, the enemies of David, um, the soldiers of Avshalom. 20,000 people die in just one day of battle. Um, the, the scene of the battle is so extensive that it tells us, we're told that um, soldiers are dying uh, in the forest uh, more than, are uh, being consumed by the forest more than they were being killed by other troops. Uh, the commentators discuss what this might mean, but it seems uh, as if uh, what's being described to us is a battle that's so geographically extensive that soldiers are finding themselves uh, lost in the wilderness, um, trapped in in uh, places where uh, they are exposed to the dangers of uh, wildlife and wild beasts. Um, and then Avshalom himself is riding his mule under this tree, under this terebinth tree, his, his head gets stuck in the tree. Um, perhaps the pshat is that he bashes his head quite uh, hard uh, into this tangle of uh, uh, um, branches that's described in the verse. And he's left suspended in the tree, as perhaps unconscious, as his uh, mule carries on trotting or galloping. And he's there suspended. Uh, between, as the verse says, uh, suspended between the heavens and the earth. 
as the mule carries on trotting on. And um, the translation that I have in front of me, in many uh, Jewish translations, and indeed um, uh, Rashi and the rabbis um, say that it's not his head that gets stuck, and it's not that he was perhaps rendered unconscious, it's his hair that gets stuck. And he's left dangling by his hair. Uh, but if he's still conscious, you might worry, well, why didn't he just somehow cut himself free or call for help? Rashi addresses this question by citing a Gemara from uh, Tractate Sota, 10b, Yudam Udbet, um, says that Avshalom was only stuck by his hair. His hair had got tangled in the tree. And he unsheathed his sword to cut himself free, but he looked down. And he saw the gawning uh, uh, jaws of hell um, open, waiting for him to fall into them and be consumed. So in the rabbinic imagination, not only is he conscious, not only is he uh, um, stuck not by his head, but by his hair, but he's not uh, uh, hanging between heaven and earth. He's hanging between heaven and hell. Um, this scene is reported to Yoav. Uh, by a nameless soldier who didn't kill Avshalom in this uh, state because David had uh, pleaded with his men uh, to go gently on Avshalom. Certainly he wanted to have himself restored to the throne, but he didn't want his own son uh, to be killed in what happened. Uh, but as soon as Yoav hears, Yoav, who we know to be something of a wild man, uh, something of a, even one might say, bloodthirsty warrior, um, he, and it, whose hands are not completely clean uh, in this particular story, because Yoav, as you will know from previous chapters, played a really crucial role in the, re the attempted rehabilitation of Shalom, of Avshalom, um, inviting him back to Yerushalayim, uh, unbeknown to Yoav, this would result in this war, but um, perhaps Yoav feels a weight of responsibility for all that happened. And uh, he goes off with his, uh, with, with maybe a crack troop of, uh, of his own men, and uh, they, they um, beat Avshalom as he's hanging still alive on this tree until he dies. And then there's a perplexing story about... Um, Achimatz, the son of um, of Tzadok, and a uh, cushy soldier, both running to tell uh, David the news. Um, Achimatz tells David that the battle has been won, but is unable, unwilling, uh, to tell David that Avshalom had died. And he says, wait, there's another messenger coming, a messenger who Achimatz had overtaken on the way, this cushy messenger who breaks the news to David that Avshalom has died. And therein ends uh, the, the chapter. But I just want to return briefly to this image of um, Avshalom uh, hanging from this tree. He's hanging by his hair, uh, the rabbis imagine, for good reason, because we've had a description of Avshalom, a very vivid description of Avshalom as a very beautiful human being. Um, without blemish from head to toe, and with this extraordinary luscious hair that weighed very heavily on his head that he would cut just once a year. Uh, so if he's going to be stuck in the tree by his head, 
it's no wonder that we might imagine that his hair was what was uh, getting in the way. Now, um, this leads me to think a little bit about Avshalom. Avshalom showed tremendous promise. He was probably heir apparent and may have one day have uh, succeeded David naturally to become king of Israel, um, son of the anointed. He, he had, we know, a keen sense of justice when Tamar was raped, um, Tamar, his sister. Other people who were close to Tamar, like David, Tamar's own father, seemed to keep uh, a deathly silence in the face of this horrible injustice and violence that had been done to her. But Shalom uh, had a sense of justice that burned within. Now we might worry about the vigilantism that he had that led him extra judicially to kill his brother, uh, his brother Amnon, who had uh, been the rapist in this uh, horrific scene. Uh, but nonetheless, we see a man who in the face of uh, a quite unforgivable silence uh, was unwilling um, to, to uh, overlook the great wrong that had been done to his sister. So we see a man who has the potential to be a future king, who is possessed uh, of a spirit of justice, animated by a spirit of justice. And he also has these great kind of public political skills. He's beautiful and he has this luscious hair. And when he comes into a public place, the Bible describes him as raising out his arm and bringing people in, kissing them and hugging them. I'm thinking of a, uh, a polished political uh, activist uh, who goes into the marketplaces and kisses babies as he uh, um, campaigns for uh, his uh, election to power. Um, those skills can seem like uh, a, a certain type of sliminess, um, a kind of duplicity, a slickness, uh, perhaps a uh, superficialness, a certain superficiality that doesn't uh, uh, that, that where he shows one face of of polished uh, affection, but he doesn't really go very deep and he doesn't really mean it. On the other hand, those skills, the ability to relate to people, uh, to speak in the language of people, are indispensable for. Um, um, real political leaders, and if they're used for the good, uh, then uh, those those skills shouldn't be looked down upon. They're important, and leaders need to have them. So he's a person with great potential, but it all goes terribly, terribly wrong, because he uses these skills um, ultimately not not in order to further that sense of justice that he used to have in his earlier days but in order to uh, facilitate his own premature um, ascension to power, um, he seems to become power hungry to the extent that he's willing to kill his own father uh, in order to satiate that hunger uh, for personal success and power. And then that hair that was a symbol uh, of his potential in a sense, but also a symbol of how everything went so wrong is what makes him meet his comeuppance. I just want to share with you uh, very briefly a uh, passage from The Unbearable Likeness of Being 
by Milan Kundera, where he speaks about uh, Stalin's son, Yakov, who, um, according to the slightly fictionalized account in the novel, um, was captured by um, the German troops in the Second World War and was in a prisoner of war camp with British soldiers. And Yakov, uh, the son of Stalin, and these British soldiers would argue about the state of the latrine that they shared. And the British soldiers accused him of leaving a foul stench and a foul mess and ordering him to clean it up. And he refused to clean it up. And he went to speak to the German commander and the German commander refused to be brought into such a trivial uh, argument between uh, these inmates. And uh, Stalin's son could no longer take the humiliation, says Kundera, crying out to heaven. In the most terrifying of Russian curses, he took a running jump into the electro electrified barbed wire fence that surrounded the camp. He hit the target. His body, which would never again make a mess of the British's latrine, was pinned to the wire. Kundera imagines Yakov um, as a person who was used to bearing on his shoulders a drama of the highest order, because in the sense of being uh, the son of one of the most powerful men on earth. He was like the son of God. But uh, in the sense that his mother had probably been killed by Stalin, at least that's how Kundera understands it in the novel, um, um, he was also like a fallen angel, somebody who'd been rejected by God. Um, and how could he, a person who's used to that tremendous drama on his shoulders, undergo judgment not for something sublime in the realm of God and the angels, but for his own excrement, for the mess he'd been leaving in a latrine, says Kundera, with the very highest of drama and the very lowest, so vertiginously close. And Kundera imagines as this uh, corpse of Stalin's son is suspended mid-air, on the electro uh, electrified uh, security fence around the prison, that he was lifted defiant, in defiance of gravity by the infinite lightness of a world that had lost its dimensions. You see, the Bible describes the human being in uh, the Sefer Tehillim in the book of Psalms, Psalm 8. What is man that you have been mindful of him? Mortal man that you have taken note of him? that you have made him little less than divine and adorned him with glory and majesty on the one hand you see a person like Avshalom he's just a little lower than the angels he's the son of the anointed king of Israel but on the other hand we're all just made from the dust of the earth like Adam Arishon and to the dust of the earth we return and Avshalom was caught in this uh, uh, drama between the great and sublime potential that he held upon his shoulders as the son of the anointed king of Israel and a man with great, great potential, but also just a human being plagued by the vanities of humanity and by uh, the base desires of humanity. And it's that tension, perhaps symbolized by his hair, that leaves him suspended quite literally in the biblical text between heaven and earth.